Well, it really is a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the opportunity to share God's word with you. Uh, one of the things I never expected uh, in becoming a pastor um, at Chapel Hill, where I first became a pastor, I never expected that I would have the opportunity to preach at more places than just Chapel Hill. And that has been the case in that I've been able to preach at other churches or to teach at other churches. And not only that, but I've been able to preach and teach um, internationally. I've had the privilege of going uh, to places like um, Mexico and preaching there or Thailand. And and, um, Cambodia was really a highlight for me. Uh, And each of these places were just incredible privileges. Incredibly, uh, I mean, I just was astonished I had the opportunity to do this in each of these places I felt like I actually got more out of it than perhaps than I gave. Um, Cambodia, uh, Chapel Hill was partnered with, still is, partnered with an organization called Cambodia Hope Organization, a nonprofit there. And part of what they do is they train uh, lay people and leaders in the church to lead their churches. And so they requested pastors from Chapel Hill to come and to teach on specific topics. And I got to go and to teach on those specific topics. And I think there might be some pictures of that experience that you guys can see just to get an idea of what that was like for me. But when I was there, um, we, we spent about five days in, in this sort of um, complex, I guess. Um, you guys can, can fire those pictures if you've got them. Uh, I spent five days in this complex uh, of, of buildings and um, spent all day teaching on these topics. And halfway through the day, we would break and we would have lunch. And um, we would sit down and enjoy our meals. And I noticed very quickly on the first day something interesting about these meals. The fact that uh, for those of us who were Westerners, or even those of us who were working as as part of the uh, nonprofit organization, we were sitting over here. And the the people that we were serving, these these, uh, uh, Cambodians who were learning, they were sitting over here. And that struck me. It struck me that even those of us who were part of the church weren't able to enjoy a meal together. We weren't able to sit at the same tables. Now, this to me is sort of emblematic of how we experience our world today. There is a lot of division in our world. If you turn on the news, you hear stories about uh, this conflict or that conflict or Um, this upheaval or that upheaval. There is division all throughout our world that reminds us of this, that people groups are separated from other people groups, nation against nation, culture against culture. Even in our own nation, if you turn on the news, you see uh, issues with race tensions, immigration, refugees, right? This is something that we see and experience day in and day out, that our world is divided, I know that one of the things that's unique about Kent is that 30% of the residents here are not born in the United States. I was astonished to find that Kent was ranked as the eighth most diverse city in the United States. Number eight, just under places like New York City. So I would imagine, and you guys would know better than me, but I would imagine that this idea of division and racial tension and cultural conflict might be something that you experience day in and day out as being a resident of Kent. And even if 
you know, I, I, I would hope and I would believe that nobody here has issues with that. Nobody here has issues with racial tension. But even if that was not the case, it's just in the air. It's just a part of life where it adds to our anxiety. It adds to the pressures that we experience day in, day out in our world. So I am grateful in the Bible that we have the book of Revelation. Revelation was a uh, letter, really, or a series of letters, um, written to a church in crisis in the first century. And what they are dealing with, we are still dealing with. Some of the things that they went through, some of the anxieties that they had, some of the, the, the problems that they were wrestling with, that John's vision addresses are still uh, a mercy to us today, still things that we can learn from, still things that we can see. And the book of Revelation, if you didn't know, and I bet you did, Revelation means unveiling. It's a, it's a, a revealing of what is the truth in terms of the reality of our world, that there is a deeper reality that John is witness to in the book of Revelation, that he's peeling back the curtain, so to speak, so that we would get to see what's going on behind the scenes in heaven and would have more assurance of our place as followers of Jesus in this world. So this morning, I want to look at Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to that passage with me, and I'm going to read it, and you can follow along. Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9. It says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were sitting, standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. So Jesus, this morning as we read these words, we ask that your spirit would reveal the truth of them to us, Lord, that your spirit would reveal yourself to us, that as we read these words, we are not merely intellectually enlightened Jesus but Lord that we are changed and that our lives are different and that we look more like you so I ask that your spirit would do this work this morning in Jesus name amen so in the in the scope of things in the book of Revelation um, what's going on here in a, in a literary sense is that uh, in Revelation chapter 5 uh, there was revealed that there was a, a um, scroll, and the lamb who is worthy is, is breaking open the scroll, a seal at a time. And I would understand the scroll in, in, a, in the broadest sense to be history, not only history past, but especially history future. And so as the, the book goes on, each of these seals is broken. And this particular passage in Revelation chapter 7 is between the sixth and the seventh seal. It's kind of an interlude, right? And John does this very frequently. He has, as the vision is unfolding, as he is seeing things, 
there are these interludes where he has visions of the throne. Very often, as a matter of fact, in, in, in the book of Revelation, that is the, the most often recurring theme or recurring vision is a vision of God on the throne and what's happening around that throne. And I think, of course, there's a point here, and one of the larger points of the book of Revelation, if you take nothing else, is that God is in the center, that he is the one who anchors all. And so he has one of these interludes, one of these visions of a throne, and one of the most striking things about this particular vision is this uh, vision of, of multitudes surrounding the throne, multitudes from all sorts of cultures and ethnicities and nations and languages. And one of the things that's particularly striking to me is just understanding a little bit of John's context. You have to remember that the, that the church in that day was pretty fledgling. Now we understand the church is sprawling, as worldwide. And this vision isn't perhaps as, as uh, shocking to us as it might have been to a reader in that day. But then it was, you know, the church was thousands at most, right? It was uh, locally um, in, in Israel and perhaps in Asia Minor, Rome, but not too much further than that. And so to see a vision of multitudes beyond counting, of every nation, tribe, and language was beyond John's own experience at that point. But one of the striking things about this as well is that John pulls language from what he is familiar with. Maybe he doesn't see this in his experience as a church leader. Maybe he doesn't see this from what he knows of the church at that time. But nonetheless, he was familiar enough with Scripture to know that what he was seeing in this vision of multitudes around the throne was God's heart. And he would be familiar with passages from Scripture that outline this, that emphasize this. All the way back to Genesis, Genesis chapter 12, there's a story there of God reaching out to uh, Abraham and telling Abraham that he was going to make of him a nation and bless all the peoples of the world. And specifically, it says in Abraham, uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, all the peoples of earth will be blessed through you. Right, so in this, in this promise that God gives to Abraham, it's not just for Abraham and his children. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through, through you. There's a grand scale to God's promise here. And as Genesis goes on, he continues to reiterate this promise and expand on it. In Genesis 15, verse 5, God takes Abraham outside and he says to him, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Later on, Jacob, Abraham's offspring, one of his sons, uh, grandson actually, is praying to God and he says back to him, but you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. Fun fact, there are ten times more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on the earth. Um, actually, approximately 100 quintillion stars in our universe. Now, the point is, uh, Abraham or Jacob would not have had the uh, benefit of algorithms or computers or however on earth they figured out how many stars there are in the universe. The point is, is that whether he sat down on a beach to count the grains of sands or whether he was pointing at stars in the sky, 
he would not have enough time in his life to count every single one of those grains of sand. So they were literally uncountable. So when we see John describe in his vision that there were multitudes around the throne that they could not be counted, you know that he is referencing this promise that God gave to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. And it continues in in the Bible as we continue to read along and read the story of what goes on. You see that in the prophets, this promise is reiterated and expanded on, and we see that, again, it is the heart of God that he reached the nations. In Zechariah chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, just an example of what the prophets would say. It says here, Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming, and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. And this theme continued not only through the prophets, but into the Gospels. And it was part of what Jesus' heart was as well. There's a story in Mark and other Gospels when Jesus goes into the temple and he begins flipping over tables. And in the midst of that, he says this, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? There he goes, quoting the Old Testament, again, putting his finger on the heart of God that not only was his promise for the people of Israel, but it was for the whole world. And then, of course, in the, in the uh, epistles, Paul continues to reference these promises in the Old Testament. In Romans chapter 9, verse 25, he quotes the Old Testament. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will cur- call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Over and over and over again throughout Scripture, this is the pulsing, beating heart of God that the nations would come to him. So when we see this vision in in Revelation, it is a fulfillment of God's heart. It is a revelation not only of what is to come, but it is a revelation of what God cares about. And this, this aspect of God's heart is so integral It is so important that it is integrated right into the story of God. It is integrated right into the story of redemption. And so we go again all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In in four acts, the story unfolds throughout Scripture. And it it involves God's heart for the nations. Beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I'm going to pause there because I think this is really important to point out. That one of the things about the creation story is that when God created image bearers, human beings, one of the ways that they bear God's image is the fact that he made them different. Male and female. And in their difference, he he describes their unity as well, that they become married, right? So something about the image of God involves this idea of difference and unity, that two different people could become one. This is integral, I believe, to what it means to talk about the image of God, and it bears on what comes next as well. It continues on, God blessed them, 
and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Now theologians will describe that passage of, of, of being fruitful and filling the earth. They'll call that the cultural mandate. And part of what uh, many theologians believe that God is telling Adam and Eve to do here is to create a family, to go out and to bear God's image in, in creating a family. And that what God has done in creation, in creating, uh, in, in making something beautiful, in bringing order to chaos, bringing justice and goodness into the world, he is telling Adam and Eve to do that as a family. And basically, what he's saying is go and create societies. Go and create from your family into uh, something larger, something more complex. Go and create societies that bear my image in the world. Not only of, of difference in unity, but also of re- redoing God's work, of recreating, of, of bringing order into, from chaos, right? And so part of what God's original intention for our world is, was to reflect his image, his character into the world in, in actually one of the important things is in that difference in unity. Remember that God is a triune Godhead. He is three persons in one. So something of that is reflected not only in our humanity, but also in our societies. That as we, as societies, go out and we create order and we create beauty in the unique and varied ways that we do that, we are bearing God's image. Now, of course, the reality is We don't really see that in its best form, do we? The reality is is that we are fallen, that we are broken, and that the image of God in each of us as individuals is marred, is obscured by sin. And so also with our societies, so also with our cultures, and where we should be uh, societies and cultures of justice, of beauty, of goodness, Reflecting God's image back to him in the way that we do life as families, as cultures. Instead, there is death. There is division, fear, anger, right? That is the the effect of the fall. When Adam and Eve chose to do life on their own terms, separating themselves from God, the effects reverberated throughout our world and we see that actually in the, in the story as it continues on in Genesis chapter 11. There's this really kind of bizarre to us story, um, the Tower of Babel. I'll read the first bit of this. It says, Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And as the story continues, God um, rebukes them. He foils their efforts to build this tower into the sky, into the heavens, by giving them multiple languages. And he causes confusion, and hence the, the name Babel, right? Now, on the surface of this... I, I, if you're like me, this strikes you as odd. 
that wouldn't you imagine that God would be interested in unity? Wouldn't you imagine that he would be for them uh, being together? But there's something deeper here because we have to go back to God's original intentions, right? Even though the fall happened, God still wanted people to multiply, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That call to humanity didn't cease because of the fall. He still wanted us to reflect his image in the world. And so what we see in the Tower of Babel is actually a people who is resisting God's call in the world. They are resisting the efforts to go forth and to spread and to multiply. And, you know, they, they mention this, the word being, they don't want to be scattered. In other words, they don't want to spread. They don't want to multiply. They want to stay in one place, contra what God had called them to do. And another way to think about this is they wanted to homogenize. They didn't want the diversity and variation that God had called for in the original creation. They sought for power when it talks about that they wanted to build a a tower that reaches into the heavens. They're talking about being uh, people who are powerful. And implied in that is subjugation. That if there are other people, they would be more powerful than them. They had pride. They made a name for themselves as part of their goal. And we see in all these things, in in the, the keeping to themselves, in the selfishness, In the seeking of power, in the pride, we see echoes of the fall. We see echoes of what Adam and Eve did in reaching for that fruit. And when we look around our world and we see, as I described earlier, the kinds of divisions that we see, we are seeing reenactments of the Tower of Babel. We are seeing the same kind of effort to homogenize, to avoid uh, God's call on our life, to to seek for power, to be prideful. And of course, the story continues, right? Because God wants us to bear his image. He wants his presence known in the world through us, through our families, through our societies, and through our cultures. And so the nation of Israel grows, it becomes a nation And it fails again and again at God's call. And it needs a savior. It needs a king who can not only redeem them, not only lead them, but also to change their hearts and change their very inclination to resist God's call. And so that was Jesus Christ, of course, right? Jesus comes. He lives a life that is pure. He dies on the cross. He was risen again. And then in the beginning of Acts, he goes to sit at the right hand of God, and he descends into heaven. And in there, as he introduces the church into the world and the spirit of God into the world and, and this new humanity, it's very interesting how this is introduced into our world. In Acts chapter 2, we have a passage of when the spirit visits the people of God. And pay attention to what happens here. Well, a little bit of context first. So the people, uh, as they pray, tongues of fire come upon them. And then they make such a commotion, everybody notices, right? So it says this, utterly amazed, they ask, aren't all these people who are paying attention, who are uh, the crowd outside visiting in Jerusalem, aren't all these who are speaking, speaking in tongues, Galileans? 
then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Why is it that when God announces a new kingdom on earth through the people uh, that follow him, why is it that what he does is have them speak in the tongues of all the nations of the world? Why is that? Isn't that interesting? And what we see here actually is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. We see here a return to what God had intended in the Garden of Eden. That everyone in, in not only are they, what's, what's fascinating about this is that God could have had everyone speak one language. He could have had everyone speak one language. But instead what he does, he has everyone speak everybody else's language so that they could understand. I love this, that in this that we see a reversal, that we see instead of a uh, homogenization, instead of, of clustering together, instead there is, again, difference but unity. There is each unique language spoken, but they still understand. They still see and hear of God's glory. Instead of seeking for power, instead of reaching for the heavens, heaven comes down to them. Instead of pride, instead of making a name for themselves, they are declaring the name of God. And so we see, as I said, this reversal that instead of the Tower of Babel, instead of the inclination of our hearts, God is changing humanity so that we now can truly reflect who he is in the world fully in all the variety as God has made us through his spirit. And then, of course, consummation, this vision in Revelation 7 is the end of the story. It's the fulfillment of all this. It is the continuation of Acts chapter 2, but writ large, and finally fulfilled. And we see there that all the nations of the world, in all of their variety, in all of their colors, in all of their expressions, their languages even, are represented before the throne. And each of them, because they are different, are able to reflect God in his many, many infinite ways that he is beautiful and good and just and true. This is the vision of Revelation chapter 7. This is what we are supposed to understand, is that when we read this passage, it is the fulfillment of all that God wants. It is the fulfillment of his heart, but it is also the fulfillment of history and where we are heading. I think it's so important to see that, that this is part of the larger story, and that we are part of it. And as we contemplate and as we think, how do we enter into this? How do we take this vision? How do we live it out? I'm going to give you those four acts and to apply them, each of them, in terms of how we live and interact day by day. The beginning with creation. It is so important that we see when we encounter another human being, especially in their differences, whether that be language, culture, ethnicity, whatever, in our differences, know that there is something of the image of God in them that the potential to see God is there. That was the original intent in creation. It's funny, as, as Presbyterians, we tend to dwell on the fall. We tend to dwell on the fact that we are marred 
and obscured by sin and that, that image of God is, is difficult to see. That's where we dwell. But take a step back and recognize that whoever we encounter, wherever they are at, however burdened by sin they are, nonetheless, God made them to be an image bearer. And whatever their culture, that is his intention. So we begin there with creation. And then we do recognize the fall. And we recognize that when we see conflict, when we see division, uh, racial, ethnic, cultural division, when we see people sitting on different sides of the room, we recognize that as an effect of the fall. And we are not okay with it. We don't settle for it. That's not our call as followers of Jesus is not to say, well, I guess that's it. I think we do that too often. We shrug our shoulders and say, well, that's just how we are. That's the world as it is. But that is not our call. And that is not the call and the work of a follower of Jesus in the world. It is actually to bear God's image and to carry God's spirit into the world to reverse the effects of the fall by his grace and by his power. And so be intentional that when you see that, that you reject that way. You reject the work of sin in our world, that you work counter to it. And this is when we get to the work of redemption. And we step into the world of Acts chapter 2 and recognize that Acts chapter 2 is still happening. That Acts chapter 2 is the world that we live in, that God has given us his spirit, that he has told us to bear his image as, as we are now able to walk in his life. And so when we encounter division in our world, when we encounter differences and and the discomfort of that, and we feel the effects of sin in our lives, that we call on his spirit and we move towards people who are different. We move towards other ethnicities, move towards other cultures, because that is ultimately where we are heading. So when we see that, when we experience that in our neighborhoods and day-to-day life, when someone moves in next door and they are so radically different from us. By the power of the Spirit, we are the kind of people, as followers of Jesus, who are to extend hospitality, who, who are to invite them over for a dinner, who are to, to attempt to speak, even if we don't speak the same language, but to extend something towards them that speaks of the heart of God that would draw all nations to himself. We are the people who are filled with the Spirit. We are the people who, even as Acts chapter 2 showed us, are able to bridge those differences and reflect God in all of our different ways. That is our calling. And then, after redemption comes the consummation. This vision in in Revelation chapter 7 is so valuable to us and Something that's important in life and even uh, daily life is that it's often so important for us to have where we are going ahead of us to know how to get there. And I think one of the things that we can do with Revelation chapter 7 is just to hold that image in our mind, to let it live in our imagination. Actually, just take a moment. Close your eyes. If you need to take a nap, that's fine. I understand. But I want you to engage your imagination and close your eyes and just visualize with me what that would have really looked like. Imagine the people who are surrounding the throne. 
Moroccans, Senegalese, French, Ukrainian, Russian, Mexican. The smells, the sounds of the different languages, what they're wearing. Now go ahead and open your eyes and reflect with me as, as you imagine that, as you saw that. I hope what that did for you was inspired you. I hope what that did for you was create a sense of longing and desire that yes and amen, may that be. But also what it could do is convict. And as we held that vision in our mind, who were the people that were missing? Who were the people that we held back in our imagination that we could not imagine would be sitting and standing and worshiping before that throne? I remember years ago when we were in the midst of conflict with Afghanistan and many of our troops were over there and many of them were dying. Uh, We have friends who served and lived in Afghanistan and loved the people of Afghanistan and longed for them to know Jesus. And these friends gave us a mug and it says simply on it, I love Afghanistan with the Afghanistan flag on it. And, you know, we had this mug. We didn't think much about it. We didn't think it was controversial because we had this vision in our hearts, right? But there were several moments, I remember, uh, when we would break this mug out with guests and people would have a visceral reaction to it because we were in the midst of this conflict. Afghanistan is the enemy, right? So they would say, ugh, why do you have that mug? And for these people, and maybe for us, wherever, whoever that is, Right now, maybe it's Russia, maybe it still is Afghanistan, I don't know. But if there is someone in your heart and your mind who you have a hard time seeing before that throne, allow God's Spirit to work in you. I mentioned that story of Cambodia, and I, I, after that first day, I was just so uncomfortable with the fact that, that we were sitting apart. Um, that I, I had to do something. So that second day, I took my little bag lunch and I went and I just sat at a table um, where the Cambodians were sitting and I just sat down and had my lunch. They couldn't speak any English. I could not speak a, a word of their language. And yet I, I sat there um, and, and ate with them. And, you know, I, they, they tried offering. They were hospitable. They tried offering Whatever meat it was that they were cooking on the grill there, I said, no, thank you. I'll enjoy my soggy peanut butter sandwich. Uh, I appreciate the offer. Um, But after after a couple of days, we began to just enjoy that, right? To sit together, and even though we couldn't speak the same language, there was a connection there. And on the fourth day of doing this, one of the leaders of their church, his name was Pastor Timothy, he started gesturing to me, and it was clear that he wanted me to take out my phone and to begin taking video. He just sort of, you know, mimed that. And as, as I did, he then proceeded to sing a song. And I actually caught this on video. I don't want you to see what he sang to me. Chom 
งสบายสงสบายสงสบายจำแนกเนียงวินไอ้ขยมสงสบายดึกเนียเพราะยังเชียรูกายเปรียกริ้งบ้านเนี่ยชื่นยังชื่อดึกเนียบ้านเนี่ยเชียจำความมันชื่นได้บ้านเนี่ยชื่นยังชื่อดึกเนียบ้านเนี่ยเชียจำความมันชื่นได้จมเรียบสัวจมเรียบสัวจมเรียบสัวจมสูงจมเรียบสัวมาอาคุณนะ I didn't understand a word of what he just sang to me, but I knew that there was something special in this and that he wanted me to to hear this. And so later on, I showed the video to one of the translators and I said, "Tell me what what was he singing?" And it turned out this is what it was, more or less, something like, "Hello, how are you?" Fine. How are you? When you are sad, I am sad. When you are happy, I am happy. So there was something in my lunches with Pastor Timothy and with these other friends that he was saying to me and affirming to me: We are brothers and sisters. When you are happy, I am happy. When you are sad, I am sad. He was making a connection with me. I treasure that song. I think about it a lot. I actually sing it in my head as much as I can, because that is what we are called to. That is the vision of Revelation 7. Each in our unique, beautiful, and varied ways, bearing our culture, our families, our languages, we are each called to bear God's image in this world, reflect His goodness, His beauty. Is justice. We are not divided. We are united by the power of the Spirit. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for this vision. I thank you that you showed us your heart, that you showed us what you intended for our world from the very beginning. And Jesus, I ask that you would help us. Bear this out. That you would help us to be such a people as you are, to to be a people of your heart. So, Lord, in our context, wherever we may be in our work, in our neighborhoods, Lord, when we encounter division, help us to resist it. Help us to say no to the sin that is in our world, and help us to be a people of your Spirit. Help us to reach out in connection. Help us to reach out in hospitality, so that others may know your heart as well. Jesus, by your Spirit, we ask that you would help us to do this. That where we lack words, that you would give us the words. Lord, where we lack courage, that you would give us courage. Where we, Lord, are feeling fear, where we are even, Lord, feeling hate, heal our hearts. So that we can see with your eyes, Jesus. I long for this day, and I hope all of us do change our hearts so that we do, Lord, indeed desire your presence, Lord. That we desire that moment where, in our differences, in our variety as you have made us, Lord, we reflect back to you your glory, your goodness, in praise. So, Jesus, make this so. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.